Welcome to Rusk, insights on rehabilitation medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM and R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I would like to welcome back our listeners to part two of an interview with a panel consisting of Tara Denham, Artemis Yusefnia, Jennifer Fay, and Eva Mahovich. So welcome to the four of you, too, and let's begin where we left off at the end of the first part of the interview. Last time, we discussed various topics pertaining to patients who experience persistent postural perceptual dizziness, which often is referred to as 3PD. Some patients who undergo bouts of dizziness have reported what they consider out-of-body experiences. Have any of your patients reported anything similar to that? I believe that a lot of these experiences are, are mediated by the experience of, of severe anxiety or panic. And when one is in that kind of state of mind, you can suffer from bizarre psychological perceptions, one of which is derealization. That's the feeling that the external environment is strange or unnatural. You can feel spacey or detached from what's going on around you. And, of course, this is exacerbated by the real physical sensations that are distorted by the the vestibular disorder itself. And then there's depersonalization, which is feeling detached from yourself, feeling like you're not really in your own body or are on the outside looking in. Please describe any evaluation techniques that you use in developing treatment plans for these patients. Okay, well, we treat these patients in a variety of ways. The population is treated different than the traditional vestibular disorders patients. So this population tends to have visual motion sensitivity. So we expose them to visual stimulus, which is busy, such as videos that we can get on YouTube that will like depict uh, Grand Central Station, for example, or optokinetic lines, and just try to get them habituated to these visual motion activities so that they no longer feel them as a trigger to their symptoms. They also have anxiety, which Eva will, of course, work with them for their anxiety, but we also incorporate some breathing techniques in our therapy to make sure that they will decrease anxiety. Also, we need to do some relaxation exercises with them and and to make sure that they're grounded and feel the floor because a lot of these things happen because their senses aren't really perceiving or interpreting the correct things. Like, for example, they don't necessarily feel like they're um, grounded, so we do some of those exercises, some visualization of that. We also... So because their senses aren't perceiving things correctly, we do what's called sensory reweighting so that we do different movements so that they can get a feeling of where their body is, how far their body can move, and what their natural reactions are to losing their balance. And, you know, it's all all through pretty much what's called habituation, which is just the body will no longer perceive the noxious stimulus as noxious, and you will start to decrease their symptoms in that way. Is medication ever included for some of these patients along with the interventions you just mentioned? 
Yes, we, we work very closely with the otolaryngologist or the neurologist or whomever was the referring physician, and they will do the medication. We, of course, can't prescribe the medication, but it's something that the physician who is in charge of the patient and under their care, they will provide medication, which is very helpful and very key to helping these people with 3PD. And just to clarify, among the treatment approaches that you just mentioned, do they also include gait training and gaze stabilization specifically? Those are key elements for the general vestibular disorder population, people with vestibular disorders. It's not as key of a role that they play in patients with 3PD because they usually don't have these deficits of gait stability or even imbalance. Um, at this stage of the game, they're usually pretty compensated with that. So we use other you know, the trip techniques I just talked about more than we do gait training gait. We may also do a walking program to expose them to more visual stimuli. For example, walking into a supermarket, starting out at one minute, walking in, turning around, coming back and then slowly increasing that with different increments as they can tolerate it. Throughout healthcare, there's a concern that any kind of treatment be based on what's called good solid evidence. What's the status of the evidence for the kinds of things you do? And as part of that, any clinical practice guidelines that exist, are are they evident enough and enable you to guide you in what you're doing? There's several research papers out there that have shown the benefits of the therapy that we just described. However, clinical practice guidelines are not yet available. I think it's a little bit too soon, but there is talk that they, they will be developed. I think we just have to have a little bit more evidence and a little bit more research done in order to come up with the exact clinical guidelines, but they, they will be in the works. But there is a fair amount of research out by different practitioners about the effectiveness of the treatment we're discussing. Can you give an example of some of the research gaps that it would be helpful to have them filled? As Tara mentioned, we need more research to support the clinical practice guidelines to determine the efficacy of the different treatment protocols. There are a lot of gaps, actually, in this particular population because it's so new, and so we really have to do some very traditional double-blind studies to make sure that we have the most effective guidelines when they're developed. In the first part of the interview, we talked about the patients themselves and the fact that some of them may have a little difficulty in a very clear way indicating the nature of their problems and the the symptoms that they're experiencing. Are there any factors that characterize the patient, such as their sense of the fear of the future or any threats that they may perceive regarding their own self-image? And is there any way that these could possibly detract from the success of rehabilitation interventions? Well, anxiety is a very common characteristic among uh, 3PD patients. And oftentimes they develop a hypervigilance to sensations, uh, which in turn triggers various fears of threats, such as having a dizzy spell in a public place or a fear of falling. And that uh, can result in avoidance behavior, not going out as frequently, even to the point of agoraphobia, which is technically the fear of, of open spaces where people are fearful about leaving their house, which is a very disabling psychological condition. There are also social implications to having um, a vestibular disorder in 3PD. It is 
for the most part, what's called a hidden disability. These people look normal. And the general population, as, as we are, have been discussing, really don't have much awareness of the condition because it is a, quite a new uh, diagnosis. And the, some of the behaviors, like an un, unbalanced gait, can be interpreted as uh, the person being intoxicated. And sometimes people feel that they're being judged as being uh, malingering if they can't work or perform tasks. So there's the fear that they're being uh, misperceived by their friends and, and the and the, and in workplace. There's also some depression and sense of loss that can be occurred incurred in this syndrome. And most particularly, there can be a sense of the loss of identity uh, when one cannot do normal activities, when they can't, when you can't work, when you can't socialize, or even trust your own senses. That's a profoundly devastating thing psychologically. And we know that emotional distress is an impediment to the um, vestibular rehabilitation, and that's been quite uh, validated through various research uh, through the years. And essentially, that's because a, a person is, is so paralyzed with their emotional uh, upset that they, they really cannot focus in on the task at hand and, you know, have additional fears like fear of falling and so forth. Which brings up a good point that, that we, we, with this patient population, really need psychological intervention of some sort or another to, to reduce the anxiety mm-hmm. and the um, fight or flight, fight or flight reaction mm-hmm. that they have. So Eva on our team is an integral part of our therapy because it really we really need to go hand in hand in order to mm-hmm. be successful with these. Yeah, and I, and I must say that the, the physical therapy staff in our vestibular rehabilitation uh, program is extraordinarily psychologically sensitive, and they will ask me for advice on how to handle situations and so forth, and, and I have a utmost respect for their intuitiveness and their ability to deal with emotionally difficult situations. Thank you, Eva. <laughs> Along lines of psychological interventions, what would be the major components of a cognitive behavioral approach to treating these patients with 3PD? Okay, cognitive behavior therapy, also known as CBT, is a contemporary evidence-based psychotherapy that helps an individual to develop strategies to modify dysfunctional emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. CBT rests on the idea that thoughts and uh, perceptions influence behavior. So we have a pretty big toolkit that we use. First and foremost, we do a tremendous amount of education, education about vestibular disorders, 3PD, and the human stress response, a flight, fight, or freeze response. Then we will do some training in physical relaxation, typically uh, paced breathing, because that can literally reset the body's biological stress response. We also do progressive muscle relaxation when a person has vestibular migraines because that's an evidence-based treatment for headaches. One of the relaxation techniques we use is mindfulness meditation, which is a very widely used um, intervention now. And there's a tremendous amount of hard evidence that it changes the, the brain in very beneficial ways, most particularly helping with emotional regulation enabling focusing and and concentration, um, and in general, you know, increasing one's stress resilience, which is very, very helpful for this population. 
Uh, we also work a lot on negative thought patterns like the tendency to catastrophize and rewrite those scripts is called cognitive restructuring. We actually have been using more imagery for both relaxation and to enhance performance. And sometimes I actively use it to augment the uh, virtual reality stuff that the PTs are doing. We do uh, in vivo desensitization. Uh, that's where we actually leave the office and I trot the patients down to the lobby and watch them as they negotiate real life experiences like people walking in front of them and so forth. And oftentimes observe things like they, they're so anxious when they're walking that they hold their breath. So I cue them on how to breathe and, and be more relaxed in the setting. And finally, we do a combination technique called stress inoculation, which has been very helpful in, in preparing patients for anticipated stressful events like travel. And that involves combining uh, a relaxation technique with uh, imaginal rehearsal, imagining them actually getting on an airplane and so forth, and cognitive coping self-statements to kind of help them through the anxiety-producing uh, situation. So we really do have a, a wide array of techniques that we use. Once you begin working with a patient, for the benefit of our listeners, during what periods of time, such as, say, weeks or months, do most of these interventions occur? And are there plateaus where further treatment might not be associated with any additional improvements? So as we said before, there's not a lot of research into optimal timing of of when to start intervention, but we do know from neuroplasticity research that early intervention is best. If patients go for many months to years undiagnosed and untreated, it can lead to more ingrained illness beliefs, um, higher degree of maladaptation, and more dis severe disability. So long duration of symptoms is not always a favorable outcome. I would say that they can have some improvement in their symptoms, but maybe not a total recovery. But at risk, we have noticed with our patients who have been treated earlier on, say right around three to six months or so, they do recover a lot faster and better. They also have not exhausted the medical system with unnecessary testing, which can be very onerous for them and also contribute to more symptoms of anxiety and subsequent dizziness. Mm -hmm. We kind of um, dissuade the tests that are unnecessary for them to, to try to seek out a diagnosis. So usually we, um, we can stop that cycle of just going from doctor to doctor to doctor. The term research has been used several times in these two sets of interviews. Are there any studies now being undertaken at RASC, or do you have any proposed studies on the drawing board that would shed additional light on these types of vestibular disorders? At the moment, we are exploring a study on virtual reality in the use of the 3PD population because of this visual motion sensitivity that they have that may be fully immersed in a visual environment may help them cope with that and habituate to the disturbance that they have with motion sensitivity. So we, we're in the drawing board. It's, it's not quite, it's been written up. It has to be um, sent to the IRB at the moment, but we're putting the final touches on it before we send it in. But that's something that we're looking into. And among all the different topics we've covered in these two sets of interviews, is there anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to mention now? 
I think we'd like to just reiterate how important it is to educate the patient, detect 3PD early, and have a collaborative approach in order to help the patient and also prevent progression of the chronic symptoms. And a lot of the literature talks about how patient education is extremely important, that the patient understands what's happening, that is it a real sensation, it's not something that is in their head that it actually has a diagnosis and there's a reason why they feel the way they do and that they can get better. I think all of that has to be brought up. And some people have a little bit of difficulty talking about an anxiety disorder, but it really isn't. You know, it's really more of a sensory re-weighting issue. So just to make sure that the patient understands that we believe what they have and that it is a real phenomenon and, and this is what's happening and this is how we're going to try to address it. Tara Denham, Artemis Yusefnia, Jennifer Fay, and Eva Mahovich, I'm going to close by thanking each of you for sharing your insights with our listeners about your activities at NYU that involve the treatment of patients who've experienced 3PD. It has been both an honor and a pleasure to have this discussion with you today, and I wish you continued success in all your future endeavors. Again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.